Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, 15 Now, Black Lives Matter, Occupy, the Tea Party, movements are a staple of democracy in the United States. But do they really make a difference? Labor journalist Sarah Jaffe says the answer is absolutely. Solidarity is kind of a basic human need. We are social creatures. We actually like each other, it turns out. Um, One of the reasons that I think that occupations of public space have been a recurring tactic in this moment, in this moment post-2008, is that our public spaces have been privatized. Our places to be political and public together have been taken away when labor unions are in decline, institutions like that are fading, and we are all, you know, whether we're gig economy workers or we're all just working so hard to survive, we lose those moments of connection, and once we rediscover them, they're incredibly powerful. Jaffe is an independent journalist who writes about labor, politics, and pop culture. Her new book is Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. She spoke at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library on August 22nd. Thank you to Seattle Public Library for our recording. Here, the Elliott Bay Book Company's Karen Maeda Alman introduces Sarah Jaffe. So good evening. It's nice to see so many people here different generations, and that's something that's very much reflected in Sarah Jaffe's book. Sarah Jaffe is a Nation Institute reporting fellow and an independent journalist covering labor, economic justice, social movements, politics, gender, and pop culture. Her work has appeared in Salon, Washington Post, The Guardian, In These Times, and elsewhere, and she serves as the co-host of Dissent Magazine's Belabored podcast, She's a columnist at the New Labor Forum, and she recently spoke at the American Sociological Association's Seattle Conference, though she's a journalist, not a sociologist. Tonight, she's with us to speak about her new book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. This is published by Nation Books and recently excerpted online in Dame. In her book, she covers many types of movements from all over the political spectrum including the Occupy movements, Moral Mondays, Walmart unionization, Seattle's successful $15 minimum wage campaign, Black Lives Matter, Oath Keepers, and many others. Some will be very familiar and others will not, and all of their stories are gripping. One of the many strengths of this book is the way in which it tells a larger story about grassroots activism. Sarah Jaffe argues that while these movements are often studied as separate entities. They are best understood in context, having important similarities and interconnections. And she described how these movements have used new technologies that have influenced how these movements spread, and also notes that the public square is very much where people come together to organize. Her book has been praised as a wise must-read by many, including Barbara Ehrenreich, Bill Moyers, Sarita Gupta, among them, And we're looking forward to hearing what she has to say tonight, and we also have a special guest with her. So she will speak, and um, there will be a QA. and a and I know there are many activists out in the crowd, including people from Sojourners, Sanders' campaign, and other people. Um, And so we'll be glad to hear from you during the Q&A. I'll also be selling copies of um, Necessary Trouble, at the Elliott Bay sales table, and she'll be signing at the front. And I also have a zine from a small publisher called Guillotine Press, and that is something that she co-authored as well. So with that, thank you for joining us tonight, and please join me in welcoming Sarah Jaffe. Hi, Seattle. I am so pleased to be here because if you guys hadn't, well, first of all, been the first place to have a $15 an hour minimum wage vote and a few other things besides that I'll talk about, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. So um, I am super grateful to all of you here for coming, for supporting progressive politics. Some might even say radical politics. 
Um, and for being a leader nationwide on, on some things that desperately needed leading. So I'm going to read a little bit from the book. I'm going to read from a couple of different sections, um, which are certainly not going to cover nearly all that is in this book. Um, and I am sure that since I'm in Seattle, I'm going to have people who are part of the movements I'm going to read about and more besides, and I look forward to hearing from you. Um, and I'm also yes, going to invite up a special guest to talk about what's going on next for low-wage workers and worker organizing in Seattle. So thank you again. I figured I'd start off with the fight for 15 because, well, that's you guys led the country on that. Um, and I'm going to start off with where that began, um, which is actually my hometown of New York City. By 2012, in the wake of Wisconsin and Occupy, space had once again been carved out to talk about inequality without the fears that had hovered around such talk during the Cold War and post-Cold War years. Many groups were looking for a way to use the rekindled radical imagination to create concrete changes. New York Communities for Change, the group that arose from the ashes of Acorn in New York, had been organizing workers at local grocery stores and car washes across the city. These workers were mostly immigrants, were often the victims of wage theft and labored under the fear of deportation, yet they had been able to win several victories and even a few union contracts through a partnership with the retail, wholesale, and department store workers and the community organization Make the Road New York. Rather than going store by store, these campaigns attacked the business model of the whole sector head-on, noting that the problems were often endemic to the entire industry, not just one shop. If one car wash raised its prices to raise wages, that might just run it out of business and destroy any gains made for its employees. The energy of Occupy had added vigor to these and other labor campaigns in the city. Occupy's labor working group had created a collective called 99 Pickets, which would turn out to support workers both on picket lines and through direct action around the city. Once again, there was a vision of a labor movement that could make big demands. In this environment, the partnership between NYCC and SEIU, which is, of course, as you know, the Service Employees International Union, was born that would result in the fight for 15. The idea of organizing fast food workers had been bouncing around SEIU and within NYCC for a while. It was backed by John Kest, who was NYCC's leader since the ACORN days, who died shortly after the first strikers walked out in November 2012. The day before that strike, I spoke to Jessica Harris and Savidra Jantua, who both made less than $8 per hour. If you've all been to New York or know about New York rents, you know what that is. The managers are telling us that we don't have power. In reality, we do have power, and they're trying to suppress our power, Jantua told me. They want to keep us down so they can be up, and I think that's not fair. Like the car wash and grocery store campaigns, what was then called fast food forward targeted an entire sector. Workers from McDonald's, Burger King, KFC, Domino's Pizza, and Taco Bell joined in. Like the Walmart strikes that had happened earlier that fall, the first actions taken by the new campaign were one-day strikes, supported by raucous rallies with community members, clergy, and elected officials. Dancing on Brooklyn's Fulton Mall outside of Burger King, fuchsia-haired Pamela Flood told the crowd that she wanted to make enough money to take her two sons on vacation the way her boss did. From the beginning, the movement called for $15 an hour in a union. At first, it seemed like an impossible demand, even in expensive New York City. But it was a big enough demand to be exciting, to make workers like Flood think about what they could do if they were paid a living wage. It was enough of a demand to dream about. The next city to go on strike was Chicago, where community group Action Now also partnered with SEIU and took workers out on a one-day strike in April of 2013. The movement there built on momentum from the 2012 teachers' strike and embraced that city's radical history, traveling to Forest Home Cemetery to visit the memorial to the men who had been executed for the Haymarket bombing, and learning about the Latina background of Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, the widow of Albert Parsons and a lifelong radical organizer. Striker Trish Kajla wrote of her decision to organize when her college degree didn't get her the good job that was promised, and her Whole Foods job didn't pay the bills. In my store, when I faced disciplinary action for violating the attendance policy we had been organizing against, I demanded union representation in my disciplinary meeting, and my coworkers prepared to take action if they decided to try and fire me. Management backed off. The disciplinary meeting never even took place. In Missouri, the third state to go out, 
The campaign named itself Show Me 15, taken from the state's nickname, the Show Me State. There, leaders like Rasheen Aldridge would hone skills that would be deployed a year later in the protests over the shooting of Michael Brown by Ferguson police. In different cities, SEIU partnered with different organizations, but the pattern remained, organizing fast food workers across the sector, bringing them out on a single strike day that culminated in a massive rally that drew support from the community, from existing labor organizations, and from sympathetic elected officials. The movement seemed as much about changing politics, the minimum wage law in particular, as it was about organizing workplace by workplace. Since most fast food chains operate on a franchise model, the immediate boss in most workplaces is operating on a thin profit margin, kicking back a required payment to the corporation at the top, and wringing profits out of the workers by keeping them at minimum wage or just above. By targeting the sector, and particularly the biggest names in it, like McDonald's and Burger King, the campaign was saying that the extremely profitable brand name corporations and their exceedingly wealthy executives were in fact responsible for the conditions in their franchises. The National Labor Relations Board backed that claim up, ruling that the fast food giants could indeed be considered joint employers of the workers who are making burgers and fries on the, fr- on the front lines. One hot week in the middle of the grueling summer of 2013, the air conditioning at two fast food restaurants in Chicago and New York went down. Workers at these stores walked off the job and referred, refused to return until the air was fixed. Regardless of whether the NLRB recognized them as such, the workers were beginning to act like a union. Crystal Thompson, who I must say was supposed to be here with us tonight, and she could not for a family emergency, but we wish that she could be because she's amazing. She worked at a Seattle Domino's Pizza and attended the first Fight for 15 conference in Detroit and met other workers there. She kept in touch with them, sharing strategy and support, but was still too nervous to go on the first strike in Seattle. The organizers continued to include her in the planning, she said, remembering how they would use the term go bowling to talk about the strike. The first strikes in Seattle were dramatic, and they drew more workers in. My directive was to create chaos, said Sejal Parikh of uh, Working Washington, the organization that backed the Seattle Fight for 15. Workers struck, shut down their stores, demanded the city's attention. What was at that point a national campaign still differed greatly from city to city, and in the Seattle area, where the effort to gain a $15 wage was already in motion, the city fizzed with energy. So, Seattle, you all know what happened next. I don't need to tell you. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here and read you a little bit about the section when I went to um, St. Louis in the Ferguson area in Missouri, because I think it actually connects quite well to talking about the fight for 15. And so did uh, one of your Seattle workers, who you'll hear from in a second. Kennard Williams recalled the takeover of St. Louis City Hall that the protesters had staged for Moral Monday in October, just after the shooting of Von Derrett Myers. The original plan had been for a relatively small group to drop a banner inside. Instead, more than 60 people showed up, and they simply flowed in and took over. I had a megaphone with me, and I was calling to meet with the mayor, Williams said. He was going to present the protesters' list of demands, which included the removal of the city police from the 1033 program, which is the program where the federal government um, sells military weapons to local police departments. Um, They were demanding independent investigations of officer-related shootings and a civilian review board for the police. But he was met by an aide to the mayor who, he said, asked them if they were hungry and wanted pizza. I looked at him and I asked, does it look like we came here for pizza? The mayor's chief of staff then came to meet with him and promised to open communications with the protesters within 48 hours. By 9 o'clock the next morning, the mayor's office had reached out to them, and shortly thereafter, Mayor Francis G. Slay came out in favor of body cameras on police. If there is any hope for American democracy, it is in the streets of Chicago and Baltimore and Ferguson, says Kate Crockford of the ACLU. Because police crackdowns remain a large factor discouraging people from joining the actions, challenging the police is in some sense necessary for any future protests to stick. Thus, the Ferguson movement became, in a way, the protest that made all other protests possible. But it took a lot of work to make those protests possible. Since the beginning of the protests, Kennard Williams had gone through legal observer training, street medic training, nonviolent civil disobedience training. Those skills allowed him to play many different roles at different actions from being prepared when the chemical weapons came out to keeping track of people who got snatched up to organizing actions like the one at City Hall. 
Ferguson protesters eventually won a court order preventing police from using tear gas without making a declaration of an illegal assembly and giving the protesters time to disperse. This came after the night when it was announced that Darren Wilson, the police officer who had shot Brown, would not be indicted for the killing. On that night, Williams was at Mokabe's Coffee Shop, a neighborhood business that had become a hub for protesters and a safe space during protests. Police fired tear gas that night onto Mokabe's patio. People tried to go out through the back door, and they fired into the back alley at the exits of the building, Williams said. I treated two kids, like nine or ten years old, for tear gas exposure and flushed their eyes and everything. Flexibility as well as symbolism were key to the actions in Ferguson. Diamond Lachison cited the work of artist-activist Elizabeth Vega, whose creative actions could evoke a deep emotional response. The die-in, often timed to evoke the hours that Michael Brown's body lay in the street, became symbolically important, too, both as a gesture of mourning and a way of holding space reminiscent of labor sit-down strikes. St. Louis workers with Show Me 15 held a die-in at a convenience store as part of a nationwide day of action in December. Carlos Robinson, a participant in that action, told me that they were trying to show people the significance between injustice in our workplaces and injustice in our communities. When Show Me 15 first took off, Organization for Black Struggle director Montega Simmons said, there was some resistance within the city to the strikes. But after Michael Brown's death, it became easier for people to understand struggle and disruption as a tactic. Fast food workers elsewhere, such as Malcolm Cooper Suggs in Seattle, also connected their struggle to the Ferguson movement. Working minimum wage... You see that when you don't have money, you do other things, said Cooper Suggs. If you don't have a job, if you don't have a legal job, you do illegal things for money. You do illegal things, you go to jail. After you go to jail, you're branded a felon for life. It's harder to get a job. You're doing even more illegal activities. It's a cycle that people get stuck in, and we've got to do something to break it, because if we don't, we're in trouble. Every facet of the movement is interconnected. You have the fight for 15, keeping people in a low-wage position as a locus of control. That's a method to control people, Kennard Williams said. Using those same systems to deny people health care, that's used to control people. If you have an oppressive racist police force, that's obviously used to control people and keep the status quo. With the Occupy movement, power consolidated to just a small series of corporations that control other corporations, all of it is methods of control. So I can stop there. I can read a little bit from uh, the bit about the Shell No campaign and the Kai activists. I don't know if I have any Kai activists in the room. Do I? Yes. Should I read it? All right. Excellent. Um, so before Mike O'Brien was elected to the Seattle City Council, he was a Sierra Club volunteer. It was as an activist that he got involved in the fight against Shell Oil's Arctic drilling endeavor. In January of 2015, they learned that the Port of Seattle planned to lease a terminal to Shell as its home port. From there, Shell would send ships to probe Arctic waters for oil. At first, he told me, green groups simply said, we object. But press conferences clearly weren't going to be enough, and local activists wanted to do more. The Shell No campaign came together almost organically to the point that O'Brien couldn't even remember details. The idea of blocking the port in kayaks, he said, had become, begun almost as a joke, a reaction to the cynicism of those on the other side, which was like, what are you going to do about it? The kayak activists began to train on the water and started to plan actions designed to physically block the ship's departure, as well as events that people who didn't want to risk arrest could join. O'Brien was torn as to whether he should join the main action. Could he lose his job? What did it mean for a city council member to take direct action? He'd never been arrested before, had never done anything like what he was considering. But in a conversation with a Greenpeace organizer, he said, he began to think about the position that he was in, and he decided that he could take those risks for others who couldn't. Sierra Club executive director Michael Brune was arrested outside the White House, protesting TransCanada's Keystone XL pipeline. I had first encountered Brune at the Walmart shareholders meeting when he had read a statement in favor of a resolution that was calling on Walmart to reduce its emissions, which in turn had been introduced by our Walmart member, Mary Pat Tift. It was time, Brune wrote, of the club's decision to officially take part in civil disobedience over climate issues, to change the rules, and take a few risks. O'Brien agreed and decided to join the Port of Seattle blockade. Being on the water was a powerful experience, even if the ship eventually got past them. On the morning of September 28th, when he read the news that Shell was abandoning its Arctic drilling efforts because of, quote, costs. He was even more thrilled. 
And then the Obama administration followed that up by canceling more lease sales for drilling rights, and weeks later, rejecting a Keystone XL pipeline. Maybe once in a lifetime you're involved with something like this, where everything comes together in a way, the energy is there, the timing is right, everything happens better than you expected, and it works, he said. But that one time is built on so many other attempts. It was all the other attempts, the ones that felt like failures, that built energy to the point where they could win. So, on that note, speaking of winning and what happens after winning, because obviously the biggest struggle that I had with this book was figuring out where to stop on so many levels, right? Um, Obviously, these fights go on. The fight against climate change certainly goes on. The fight for a fair economy certainly goes on. So I want to invite up Sage Wilson from Working Washington to tell you about the fight that is going on right now here. Hi, thanks, Sarah. Um, You know, a little bit of background is actually really illustrative, I think. So Sarah asked, I think, about a month ago, if one of the, the three workers from Seattle who she talked to through Working Washington could be here tonight to speak, which we wanted to make happen, would have been wonderful. Um, and maybe frustratingly, I was not very responsive about them getting back. And the reason why is actually very much related to the campaign that workers are organizing on now in Seattle, which is that these people don't know when they're going to work until like the Thursday or the Friday or the Saturday before the next week. So... Malcolm could have been here. Um, Crystal had a, had a sick issue, which luckily is a previous victory to this book. Um, but when you don't know what your schedule is going to be before just a few days before the work week starts, that obviously has tremendous impacts on your ability to plan your budget, to care for your family, to participate in your community, as we're seeing today. And that's why that's really the next big fight that that Working Washington and low-wage workers in Seattle are involved in. It's the secure scheduling campaign. You know, and the principle is pretty simple. It's just that people ought to have a right to know when they're going to work and how many hours they're going to get. And if people who want to work more hours at their current workplace should have access to those hours before more and more and more and more super part-time workers are employed. And those things ought to be pretty basic, but, you know, the sad reality is that more and more employers like the Starbucks and the Targets and the Walmarts are, sort of, are demanding effectively 24-7 availability for workers, but not offering any flexibility or anything reliable in return. The good news is that here in Seattle, you know, Starbucks baristas in particular, fast food workers, Crystal herself has been very involved in this campaign, have been rising up to demand secure schedules. And we're, you know, the city has a very good draft ordinance that's out there now, which requires two weeks notice of schedules. It requires predictability pay, it's called when things change, sort of like overtime, but in smaller amounts when the schedule changes. Um, a right to rest, so people get at least 10 hours of rest between shifts and access to additional hours if they need to work them. And so that's sort of the next big thing moving forward. There's more, there's more on that at our website at workingwide.org. And one other piece of interesting previous background that occurred to me as you were talking is um, the Port of Seattle. Um, in the Shell protest, there's an interesting... The Port of Seattle goes way back as sort of, in a strange way, been an inspiration, I think, to, on a lot of this. Um, the, before Seattle, of course, if you live here, you probably know, there was SeaTac, where there was the $15 minimum wage initiative on the ballot for uh, hospitality and transportation workers that finally is in effect now after many years of legal struggle. Um, and one of the inspirations for that going to the ballot was the fact that the Port of Seattle, the same Port of Seattle, most of the same commissioners, if not all of the same commissioners, who tried to move Shell in, also refused to take action to ensure that people who worked at our airport had good jobs. Um, that was not great public responsibility, but the impact of that was that it helped spark, if they had, in a way, if the Port of Seattle had done the right thing in 2012, SeaTac probably would not have gone to the ballot, which then it's not clear what would have happened in Seattle and where we'd be in this movement. So sometimes the right person doing the wrong thing is helpful, and maybe we saw that with Shell again. So that's my last, that's my last thought. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I should say this is my first, t- my third time in Seattle. Um, the first time I came was to um, host a low wage worker story slam, which was before the first Seattle low wage worker strike. 
And the second time was after you guys had already won $15 an hour, so you move fast around here. Um, and this is my third time, and now we're talking about secure scheduling. I think the, the struggles around time are going to be really interesting going forwards in terms of scheduling, in terms of having enough hours, in terms of paid sick leave, family leave, all of these fights around your right to work, but also your right to have time off, to have a life, to be a human, to live in the world, um, to spend time with your family, to take care of your family, as Crystal is doing tonight. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, I'm really hoping next book we'll talk about some of those things more. Um, so again, thank you all so much for being here, and um, I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you. Why would people actually say that black lives matter at all? If you can see the type of thing that happened with Freddie Gray, then this uh, outburst in uh, Milwaukee, I'm talking about recent stuff. We're not going to go way back into history. We're going to, because we're living in the now. Yeah. So as a person that writes about history, uh, what do you have to say for it? <laughs> I mean, what do I'm I have just, to say for... Because you're, you, you said you live in New York, yeah. right? Okay, come on with it, East Coast. <laughs> About the history and this stuff and how we keep repeating it? Is that, is that your question? I'm trying to make sure I understand the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we're talking about the history, we, we kind of do a bad job of learning our history in this country, right? Um, and I, I actually draw on a lot of this history in this book because I think that... Um, there's a lot of it that we miss, and there's a lot of, you know, the history of how things happened, the history of how things changed, and the history of how things didn't change, like you're saying, right, um, is really, really important. We, we kind of get this narrative that, like, in the 60s, you know, Martin Luther King marched and everything got better, and what we're seeing now is clearly it didn't for a lot of people. And, yeah, I mean, and I was just talking to, I was actually just talking to Kennard, who I was just quoting from my Ferguson section, because um, I'm going to be in St. Louis in a few weeks, and I asked him to come talk at my event. And I was like, you know, it's, it's, it was, I was talking to him on the two-year anniversary of Michael Brown's death. And we were saying, you know, on the one hand, like, everything has changed. This country is talking about these things in a totally different way. On the other hand, you know, the everyday situation for them in St. Louis has not changed at all. And that's the real thing that we have to, to deal with going forward is there, there are wins that I can talk about them. We can talk about $15 an hour. We can talk about stopping the Shell oil tanker, but we haven't stopped, you know, we haven't stopped all sorts of things. We haven't stopped neighborhood segregation. We haven't stopped, we haven't created affordable housing for people. We haven't stopped violence against, you know, against black people, against native people, against Latino people. We haven't really dealt with any of these things. And so part of the reason I wanted to write this book is to say, like, to, you know, to acknowledge some of the wins and also to, to acknowledge how far we still have to go. Um, Montega Simmons from OBS likes to say, you know, we're not in 1950, we're not in 1964, we're in 1954. We're at the beginning of this round of struggle, um, and not that much has changed since then. So thank you. This gentleman right here. Hi, thank you. And again, um... I think I speak for the crowd, thanking you for doing the research and writing this, this book, which I look, look forward to, to reading. Um, there are actually just three lines from a song that lead directly to my question. Um, when the answers and the truth cut their ties, will you still find me, will you still see me through smoke? And I think what that song lyric says to me from um, a song by the outsiders is that for 30 years as an activist and a progressive and political volunteer, I feel really very disillusioned. Yeah. The, the truth, we can have kind of some vision of the truth, something we think is very true about our society, but I think we've cut ties to the answer, yeah. to, to workable answers, because the answers also lie with people who are more conservative than we are. There, there's, there's a workable answer in between. Um, and it kind of leads also to acknowledging that the Kai activists yeah. um, from the Backbone campaign and, and, and other people who came together for that, you know, they were working very strongly for something. But um, it's just one more example to me of, you know, Shell probably did decide that they weren't going to go drill in the Arctic because the price of oil collapsed. And... <laughs> 
And when we try and do things, it's, um, I think we do need to work with people who have more conservative views also and find some answer in between. I'm curious about your, you know, what you have to say about that or your experience with that. Thank you. Yeah, so in this book, I actually, uh, you know, I start with, and I actually open it up with a gentleman who is on, I used to work for a little TV show called Grit TV with Laura Flanders. I don't know if any of you have watched it. Um, Laura's still amazing. Um, she taught me everything I know. And so in early 2010, we had this, this guy from, he was from Ripley, Mississippi, on, and he had joined the Tea Party, and he had joined the Council of Conservative Citizens, which is, you know, a, a historically, you know, rooted in the White Citizens Councils. It is, like, not just right-wing, it's, like, really right-wing. But when we're talking to this guy... He's mad at the same things that I'm mad at, right? He's saying that the Benchcraft plant in his town is gone and all those jobs are gone and he's a computer repairman, he has a small business, and people can't afford to get their computers fixed because they don't have jobs. Um, and he's looking around, this is, you know, again, this was from, you know, the big, right, the 10% unemployment was still a reality then. I mean, 10% as they officially calculate it, which is a lot higher than that, really. Um, and so, you know, and I'm listening to this guy and I'm going, we're mad at the same things. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this is like, we are mad at the same things and we do need to actually learn how to talk to each other to create solutions. And um, that doesn't mean that I automatically think that the solutions that the Council of Conservative Citizens is putting forward are the right ones. But, you know, I think that there's, there's a real question in this country about which side we're on, who we're actually angry at. And I think that it's important to think about, you know, who the actual enemy is. That, I don't know, I mean, I'm not an organizer, so I wish I could answer your question better on, like, what actual strategy should be. I'm just a journalist who writes about strategy. But I, I think that, you know, that's an, an important thing to consider. <laughs> Thank you. Those who are being hurt the most, the blue-collar jobs that are gone... Those people are supporting Donald Trump. Well, to some degree, those people are supporting some, Donald Trump. Some are yeah. supporting the, Trump. The polls, you can actually yeah, I know. You know, fold it out. It's not see. quite as simple as, as that. You can but, yeah. see, it's not. I don't want to be too simplistic, right. but so many are, again, against their own interests because he's feeding into the stereotypes, and we know that. What can be done to educate and show people? There was a, a feature on Deutsche Welle today about what happened to Ypsilanti, Michigan, when NAFTA went through. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not only there, but it showed what happened to Juarez, Mexico. Yeah. On both sides. Yeah. Both cities destroyed. On this side and that side, no jobs. The Mexican workers who got the jobs yeah. were paid practically nothing, six euros a, yep. a day. Yep. So what can be done to bring everybody together? You do a, a wonderful job in exposing this, but people yeah. have to be awakened. Mm -hmm. I was just in, um, actually, speaking of, of places that were hit by NAFTA, I was just in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, yeah, that's like where Fort Wayne, Indiana in general has been like, you know, it was, it was the first state of the wave of states that went right to work in recent years. Um, it was the first one before Scott Walker's anti-collective bargaining bill. You know, Mitch Daniels had an anti-collective bargaining bill for public sector workers. Um, all of those things have been happening after, you know, NAFTA, after all of these things. And um, if you will permit me a uh, slightly inappropriate language, or I'm going to slightly censor it, but there was a group of workers, or rather it was um, actually through the, the Fort Wayne um, Central Labor Council, and they have a thing called the Workers Project, and they had worked on a construction campaign, and you know the the unions came in and they said they're using non-union labor, they're mostly undocumented immigrants, and we want to have a campaign called Local Jobs for Local People, and the guys at the Workers Project said, nope, we're not using that frame because that frame is going to reinforce the xenophobia, it's going to reinforce these divisions, it's going to create exactly the problem that we're seeing now on a national level, and so. Um, I'm not going to say the actual word here because you guys are taping for uh, television and radio. But um, they instead named the campaign, If We Are Getting Bleeped, You Are Getting Bleeped. And it was to actually try to bring people together and say, like, you know, the, these undocumented immigrant workers who are getting exploited by this company are getting exploited by the same people who are exploiting you, right? Whether you get the jobs or you don't get the jobs, 
it's the same people and we're actually on the same side. And there's a wonderful actual side story to that where a small business owner who owned a Mexican restaurant who was, you know, making lunch for these people, the undocumented workers, every weekend actually contributed his receipts to, so that they could prove that they were working unpaid overtime because, you know, the company was saying, no, 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 it's fine, they're not working overtime, they're not working on Saturdays, and this guy came out with his list of the lunches he had sold on the weekends and said, oh, yeah, they are. So, you know, that's one place and that's one story, but I think that that's the real question is, like, how do we replicate that and how do we replicate that in the places that have been hit? How do we replicate that in Ripley, Mississippi and Ypsilanti, Michigan and these other places as well as in Seattle, as well as in New York City, um, you know, as well as in Chicago? Hi. Hi. Um, in terms of your research, have you looked at the impact of technology? We're looking at potentially mm -hmm. 47% of jobs in the United States being replaced yeah. by robots. Any... Yeah. Any thoughts there? I mean, partly book number two, but um, but it's it's a real it's a real question, and this is a book about like the things that are going on right now and the, the organizing that's been happening over the last several years. And I think that you know the question of technology, the question of unemployment, the question of like what we do next, is in some ways related to what I was saying about the question of time. That I think that in the the beginnings of these secure scheduling campaigns and campaigns for paid sick leave, campaigns for a right to your time and to not sort of endlessly have to work, are even more important if we can actually have robots that can do 47% of the jobs and we all need to work less, you know? Um, and so that's the real question is like, how do we do this? We had the closest thing and the thing that the Fight for 15 often reminds me of was the eight-hour day struggle um, a hundred and something years ago, which was across sectors, across classes, across genders, it was really popular among women who often had to be the ones who were still responsible for taking care of the kids at home. Um, and it was eight hours work for 10 hours pay because everybody was working at least 10 hours at that point in time. And it was, you know, the, the slogan was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what we will. And I, I think we need to start thinking a lot more about the what we will. Uh, could you summarize what you said to the convention of sociologists? <laughs> I kind of just went through what's in the book um, and how, that, how I argue that these, are, um, that these movements are connected. And I think they're connected both you know, as like a historical period that we're in, that like post-2008 financial crisis, we are in a moment where um, you know, we had a big shock. We looked at this moment where like capitalism almost committed suicide and what now and the little solutions didn't look like enough anymore and so in so many of these movements we're seeing bigger demands we're seeing bigger ideas we're seeing bigger questions like what do we do if 47 percent of the jobs can be done by robots um like what do we do with our time like what do we do if climate change is coming and we're going to be underwater in places like seattle um and so that is the, the really quick and dirty summary, which also was just kind of a summary of the book. Hi. Um, I guess I, I always ask, I think, say things in the form of a statement. And I'm, I have a little bit different perspective because I'm from a rural area, but now I live in Seattle. Yeah. And I have been was a libertarian, and now I'm a socialist. And I'm almost like... Um, I, I enjoyed reading the whole booklet for voting and um mm, yeah i just read an anarchist thing that said like let's just give up not vote it's not worth it it's just like ma uh majority wins we have representative government we don't really have democracy but anyways i liked it was weird i found some libertarians that i were like these guys are awesome they're environmentalists they're aware of like the economic and the in the injustices in the world but then there were other guys like i'm going these guys creep me out. They're like <laughs> racist, but on the verging, they're like against immigrants. They're just like, let's close in on ourselves. Let's like go kill other people in other countries. But yet, and so it was like they were totally two different types of people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I think that I am not a good listener because I have not been listened to. I like have no voice sometimes. I have a disability. I have, I just, um, I'm scared to open my mouth. But, I do think it's important to listen, and I think every time you have a good conversation with other people, yeah. 
And um, there's so many issues that get overwhelmed. But if you talk with someone of another race, if you talk with someone of another class, and there is class in America, every time you do that, then things do change. Yeah. So I, I think that's cool when that happens. Not that I always listen that great. I'm <laughs> cranky. I can't really say it better than that. I think that's super important, which is one of the reasons I went into journalism is I like listening to people. I, thank you for coming. Thank you. And I'm from Brooklyn. Yes. Home of the Bernie Sanders and all the other crazy all right. uncles I had. That just Huge. looked like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to ask for something different. Yes. Have you analyzed the gig economy, mm -hmm. the, uh, the attempts to organize that, mm -hmm. what their actual pay is, what are the statistics about yeah. it? And if, in fact, uh, there is uh, any attempt to keep uh, these workers or, uh, from organizing. Yeah. And is the offset to that yeah. the fact that they do have flexibility, which is an advantage because yeah. they can work on their own hours. So is that enough of an offset to someone you know, that you've analyzed? I mean, again, some of these are like, you guys are asking wonderful questions because they're not stuff that's really the focus of this book, but they're things that are like obsessions of mine. So thank you again for that question. Um, I'm a freelance worker. I have kind of the best of both worlds because I have a fellowship from the Nation Institute, which is like a backstop to my ability to function. Um, that said, I have Affordable Care Act health insurance and a precarious uh, situation that they want to raise my rates to 20% next year. Um, so, you know, I, I, I understand the not liking to have a boss. I don't like having a boss. Having a boss is not fun. Um, I like certain things about being a freelance worker, and so I understand that there are certain things about that that appeal to people. Um, one of the most frustrating things as a, a labor journalist, which is mostly what I am, is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics does not really keep reliable st stats on what we call the gig economy, the precarious workforce, um, all of these, you know, different terms for different things, which, like, often mean very different things when different people are saying them. And so hopefully they're going to start redoing their contingent worker survey, um, which would be a really big bonus to me because then I can actually start to sort out some of the hype from some of the reality on this stuff. Um, I don't think that flexibility is an offset for knowing how much money you're going to make at the end of the week. Um, I would not be very good at being a freelancer if I was constantly, constantly worried about whether I was going to be able to pay my rent. Um, and, yeah, once again, I think that, you know, some of the work that people like Working Washington are doing that's really interesting is thinking about how do we do worker organizing in a world where most people don't have a 9 to 5 or a 10 to 6 regularly scheduled five-day-a-week job, where people have insecure schedules, where people have three jobs that they're cobbling together, where somebody is waiting tables three nights a week and driving for Uber three days a week and, you know, maybe doing some task rabbit work in between there. What does that look like? How do we think about universal social benefits? How do we think about a social safety net that actually works? How do we think about the things that we never did well, and how do we think about the things that have been dismantled? Um, and those are connect up to the question of robots and all of these other things of like, what are we going to do next and how are we going to design a world where um, the gains are not just consolidated in the hands of a very small group of people, which again also connects to the question about talking to people on the right and talking to people who disagree with us. Almost nobody except for the tiny handful of people who are consolidating all the wealth thinks that a tiny handful of people should own all the wealth. Front, I got a few. Oh, you got one there. Very great. Let's go up here next. Yeah, go ahead. I was wondering if uh, the book covers the uh, civil disobedience or the riot or whatever it was called in, in Seattle in 1999. So I um, start this book, like the main focus of this book starts since the financial crisis, but I do talk about um, a lot of history, including the, the riots and the, the protests and the WTO and all of that because it was certainly a watershed moment for a lot of people. You know, I was, I was in college when that happened. I remember watching it from across the country and being like, oh, wow, this is, you know. My, my partner was actually here for that, so, you know, that was the thing. Um, it was the, the, the base for a lot of people who are now, we're sort of the, the generation above the, 
the millennials, as they like to say, who are really kicking it off everywhere. But yeah, so I think it's a really important historical moment. Who's got the mic here? Let's go here and then from there. Yeah. Um, can you, uh, my understanding about the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership is that. Oh, is it not? My understanding there you go. about the Trans-Pacific Partnership is that it will um, allow corporations and foreign countries to um, supersede or undercut all these agreements like the $15 an hour wage, the uh, control your time movement, Mm -hmm. all these separate disparate things are going to be undercut by TPP if it goes through. Um, I don't know. Could you talk about TPP? Yeah, I mean, these, these, uh, the big fun thing about these trade deals is that they're negotiated in secret and we have to rely on leaks and things to figure out what's actually in them. Um, and again, this is a, a thing that is bipartisan, that is nonpartisan, that people are kind of like, what the heck is going on? What is in these things? And, and what rights are we ceding without even knowing that we're ceding them? Um, yeah, there are the... Um, the courts that these trade deals usually tend to put in where um, countries, or companies rather, can sue countries for um, creating regulations that would impede their right to do business, which is horrifying if we think about it. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, this is one of the big reasons that, again, that there's bipartisan anger and a lot of actual bipartisan action on these things. And... Yeah, I, I still don't know exactly what's in the TPP because we um, still don't really know because they don't tell us. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that it's a big fight. Um, it's a big deal that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump say they're against it. We don't know what they'll actually do when they're in office, if whichever one of them ends up in office. But, you know, there there is a tide in this country against that stuff, which I think is great, um, and we should encourage it. Thank you for coming, and thank you for taking these questions. About a month ago, I went to my very first demonstration. And about two weeks ago, I went on my very first march. And um, I'm curious about what is it that makes people get up and act? I know what it was for me, but I'm wishing I had started decades earlier, Mm -hmm. especially people who have a relatively comfortable life with eyes closed. Yeah. What was it for you? Um, I was in a van pool with someone who is super straight at work, but when they leave, they are very active like Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Yeah. And... One day, his, I ran into this person and his wife at the local coffee shop, and his wife pulled me aside and said, hey, do you want to come to this? And invited me. Mm-hmm. And just, I think it was because they invited me that yeah. I'm like, yeah, I want to give that a try. Yeah. What was it like? Sorry, I love this. I, I... Um, the, the, the demonstration I went to was was underwhelming, but I liked that. I wasn't ready for bricks through windows. Overwhelming? Yeah. But then the next one where we actually, and I didn't know this was going to happen, we actually took to the street and marched, I think it was eight or ten blocks, to the police station and protested. And I was was like I was floating. I was laughing. I was singing. I was chanting. It was... It was a and I I didn't feel scared at all or like I was threatened or anything. It was it was it was wonderful. Yeah, I love these stories. I this is why I wrote this book is stories like this. I there is nothing better to me than talking to people about right. What made you do it? What did it feel like? What does it feel like to realize that these things that you're told you can't do, you can actually do. There's it's kind of great. I. get a little sappy for a minute. I think that that, um, solidarity is kind of a basic human need. 
we are social creatures. We actually like each other, it turns out. Um, one of the reasons that I think that occupations of public space have been a recurring tactic in this moment, in this moment post-2008, is that our public spaces have been privatized. Our places to be political and public together have been taken away when labor unions are in decline, institutions like that are fading, and we are all, you know, whether we're gig economy workers or we're all just working so hard to survive, we lose those moments of connection, and once we rediscover them, they're incredibly powerful. Um, and I talked to so many people around the country who had, you know, and young people, older people, who had come to this for the first time or who had rediscovered it after years and years, um, who really are just like claiming this in this moment and saying that, yeah, going, going to vote every four years, two years, one year, six months, whatever it is, is not enough. And that actually um, not only is making trouble sort of the, the best way to get some attention and um, make some change, but actually it feels really good and it's fun to connect with people, and you can actually connect with people across lines that you didn't think you could in those spaces. Um, and so, yeah, so thank you for sharing that story. That's wonderful. Um, congratulations on uh, your first one, and I hope there will be many more. Um, so you describe yourself as being primarily a labor journalist. Yep. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about um, how you think the rise of corporate media um, has affected the state of journalism or the integrity of journalism. And by that I mean uh, most people getting their news from outlets that are owned by the same few mm -hmm. extremely large corporations. I have uh, so and related many thoughts. To <laughs> <laughs> uh, and related to that, um, if you have if you have time, um, if you have any thoughts about the way different protest movements are portrayed differently in the media, yeah. like the way Black Lives Matter is portrayed in the media compared mm -hmm. to um, a movement like um, the Tea Party. Yeah, I, I have so many thoughts. Um, I almost, almost, um, I was in graduate school for journalism in 2007 to 2009, and I almost stuck around and did a PhD in communications because I have a lot of thoughts on this subject. So I will try really hard to, like, limit myself here. Um, yeah, I, I mostly work in the independent media. I have done miscellaneous things for bigger outlets, but mostly I write for places like The Nation, um, and I do that on purpose, even though it doesn't make me a lot of money, because I can say what I want to say, and I'm not worried about offending a multimillionaire owner who thinks that I'm being too mean to his buddies. Um, I think that, yeah, the media consolidation question is an ongoing one. What's also happening now is that we have these, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is now also defining what we get to see. Um, Facebook is defining what we get to see. Um, and that is a fascinating thing that I, I sort of went back and talked about with some of the activists who were in this book a few months ago because things are already changing because, you know, Facebook rewrites its algorithms when Mark Zuckerberg has a bad day or something. And that changes what news you see. That changes what stories you see from your friends. It changes, you know, now it's a video. Next week it might be something else. Um, but, yeah, I, I am deeply concerned about the consolidation of media, like the consolidation of every other kind of power in the hands of a small group of people. Um, and the way that different protest movements are covered is also really interesting. And I get into this a little bit more than the other question in this book because um, protests that don't have a clear leader and sort of don't come out with a very, like, here's our demand and here's our whatever and this is our spokesperson... Um, the media doesn't really know what to do with those. And so they get weird coverage, like they have no demands and they don't know what they're doing and they're weird and they're whatever because you have to like work a little to find it out. And most, and this is a, a structural thing with media that like most reporters don't have time. It's not necessarily that they're bad people, but most of them aren't like movement and labor beat reporters like me. Um, so most of them have to hustle. So like Moral Mondays in North Carolina, which I have a chapter about in this book, um, Moral Mondays kind of does have a leader, right? Reverend Barber, um, who is an incredible charismatic figure, he kind of is understandable to people as like this old-time civil rights movement, you know, preacher. And so they got really 
mostly positive media coverage because they could go find the guy who was the leader and they could quote what he was saying and that was a story that they knew how to tell. And so, again, I could talk about this forever and uh, if you have a few minutes afterwards, we can talk about it more, but I'm going to try to answer some other questions, but one of my favorite subjects. Hi. Hi, um, I'm Merle. Thanks for uh, showing up here on the uh, left coast. Uh, but <laughs> we... Um, had some successes here in town. I don't know if this is replicated in the, in the New York case, but uh, to do with the Occupy movement, mm-hmm. where uh, in you know there were some I'd say limited things to do with like the financial market, mm-hmm. um, and you know we've conducted a lot of protests against the uh, uh, too big to fails here. Tried to get the city out of yeah. the too big to fails, and we failed. Uh, we've been trying to create a uh, public bank that the city would uh, authorize, and we've failed on that so far. Um, uh, and I, I'm wondering, you know, in, in New York, the uh, uh, leaders of the uh, Occupy movement were saying they'd had successes with, um, with regard to uh, getting people like Buffalo to uh, move out of the too-big-to-fail banks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, here we've had some successes, uh, uh, certainly with the regard to um, uh, the... Uh, uh, you know, there might have been an outgrowth of that with, with, with regard to get uh, the Corps of Engineers to disallow uh, shipping of uh, energy through the, our ports, and uh, that's through pressure. But we still have a governor who calls himself a, uh, a uh, environmentalist, and he's taking uh, kids to court. Um, now, do you see there's, like, from East Coast to Left Coast, do you see that there's a translatable phenomenon going on where, uh, you know, there's a lot of non-successes by the status quo Democrats that, that they seem to be uh, not allowing to be, you know, implement things going forward. And, uh, you know, like uh, I know with Sandy Hook, uh, uh, the Occupy movement actually performed a, 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 a better service than, than the Red Cross, but mm-hmm. you see a sort of a status quo Democrats that say that these things are manipulated by our, our protests and uh, therefore they shouldn't go forward. Uh, I don't know if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot. I love the idea of public banking. I wish we talked more about it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the real question here is, like, how do we figure out what successes are, what successes look like? Um, some of them are, are easy to define. Some of them are harder to define. When you say that, like, Buffalo moved a bunch of its money out of, I think it was J.P. Morgan. Um, and that, like, a lot of the city governments, and this is, I can get really wonky on this subject, so excuse me, um, a lot of city governments have a lot of debt to a lot of Wall Street banks, hedge funds, um, and they, these are things that are, you know, done in these, like, interest rate swaps deals and stuff that sound really cool when a guy from the bank comes in and, and sells it to your city government and says, like, this is awesome and you're going to make more money, and actually the person who makes more money is the guy from the hedge fund. Um, so, you know, in New York, we had a recent victory um, where there's a group called Hedge Clippers that's working on particularly the hedge fund issue, and the, uh, the city pulled a bunch of pub- like $1.5 billion in public pension funds out of hedge funds. Um, that said, you know, finance capital is kind of a big thing that, like, it's not like you can find a good form of it. You can just find, like, the slightly less evil form of it, or you can pu- punish specific parts of it by doing these things. Um, but that's why I think the public banking thing that you mentioned is really interesting and important because, like, otherwise we're just moving from one hedge fund to another one or, you know, one hedge fund to J.P. Morgan or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the big question is what victory looks like, which is different for a lot of people, although I think we're starting to get a glimpse of how big that really, that question really is. Two more questions? Okay, awesome. I've got one back there. and Yeah. So my question is about, or what I'd like you to speak about is intersectionality and giving power back to the first person who asked you a question um, and what she was really after. Yeah. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw was in town over the weekend, and um, I cried during her uh, talk uh, because as someone who cares, as someone, I mean, I slept in Zuccotti Park for a month. I care about a lot of these issues. Like, I, I don't, anyway... Um, but just to realize that women of color, other 
situations where it's like, all right, well, we're hiring black men, but we're not really seeing that there are people still being discriminated against and still being, I mean, it's a room full of white people saying, I, I, one of the things I loved about Occupy Wall Street was that there was a real attempt to demarginalize um, people. So I almost want to not talk in these kind of situations, but I don't really feel like the representation is there, and I hope that you could give some to... Um, how we can uh, alter the conversation or continue incrementally towards more of the subtleties of racism, whereas we might think we're not being racist, we're being very progressive, et cetera. But um, it's really deep. So I know you speak about that, and I, I would like for you to. Yeah, I think um, the panel with, with Kim Crenshaw and my friend Miriam Kaba, who's quoted in the book, and Charlene Carruthers, who is also quoted in this book, um, they're, they're kind of wonderful people. It was a great talk. Um, and it's, it's a thing that I think is, is spreading now, right? The consciousness that, like, you can't do, like, race over here and class over here and gender over here because that's not how people's lives work. Um, and what that means in terms of our activism is who do we listen to and whose stories do we find important and when we're thinking about the people who are facing multiple forms of oppression at once we tend to you know our if our movements are centering those people then our movements are going to help most people um i've been talking about this a ton and i, I probably can't possibly talk about it enough the, the Vision for Black Lives platform that just came out recently is just an incredible, incredible example of an intersectional platform of demands that range from really simple and immediate to really long-ranging and thoughtful, and they are deliberately very much, you know, they're addressing the intersections of all sorts of issues. They're addressing the intersection of climate change and racism. They're address, addressing the intersection of care work and racism, of you know sexuality and gender identity and racism, um, and that kind of thing. I, I mean, I hope we'll see more of it. I wish that that document had come out so I could include it in the book because it's incredible, and I'm just going to make up for it by talking about it at every event that I have and telling everybody to go read it because it's incredible and it's it's the best example that I can give of of what kinds of things that both the movements these days are capable of coming up with and are putting out there and just like what we need to see much much more of. And we had one more, right? Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about social media activism and when you talk about who has access to media and who's mm-hmm. who's both creating content and controlling content because now we have really rich people who are taking down individual independent media sources that they don't like because of stuff that they've reported. You mean our friend Peter Thiel? Yes, and uh, (laughs) also Mother Jones, uh, the guy in Idaho. I can't Uh remember his name. But, like, within that whole context um, and also, like, how social media has informed activism Mm -hmm. by giving a voice to people who maybe didn't have access to that. Yeah, I think, you know, we have over and over again um, seen that the activists of, of the last eight years or so have been really, really deliberate about realizing that the, the media that exists is probably not going to cover their story. It's certainly not going to cover it the way they want to see it covered. And so they think very deliberately about how are we going to get our story out and what is that going to look like and how can we, you know, do an end run around this media that doesn't treat us well. Um, so, you know, the first, the first sort of, there were a bunch of stations in, in Ducati Park and the first Occupy Wall Street, but one of the first ones was a media station. And it was people, you know, they had a Wi-Fi set up and they were thinking, again, very deliberately about what is a story we're putting out here? How do we get it out there? How does then the media pick it up? Um, there are also drawbacks to this where, like, the people who are on Twitter a lot get named by the media as kind of the leaders of the movement who are not necessarily the leaders of the movement. They're just the ones who spend the most time on Twitter. And, you know, when you have these, these structures of the movement that are, do not have one leader, um, then it can be easy also for people to sort of avoid being accountable to the rest of the movement. And this is a thing that I'm, I'm watching happen, you know, I'm watching it happen now, and I'm wondering, looking back at, like, the people from history that I've heard about from, like, the 60s, 
how many of those are like that guy also? <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting question that I, I don't know the solutions for other than like as a reporter when I was working on this book, I made a very deliberate choice to, to not focus on certain stories because they had been told and to seek out people in specific places whose stories had not been told um, and to think about, you know, what, how to try to get at the real story and not just the, the easiest story. And, yeah, and again, like, social media changes so fast right now that this is, I already want to, like, go back and revise my sections in this book about it because it's already changing. So, you know, if we get a, if we're selling enough books to have a paperback edition, I'm sure I will have updated thoughts on, on social media because it's such a rapidly changing thing. Trying to like come up with a pithy sentence to say to like be a good spot to end because I think that was our last question. Um, I don't have one, but I just want to say again, like thank you for being Seattle. You're a wonderful city, and I appreciate all that you've done to make my job easier. And thank you for coming. And um, I will go sign some books. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Sarah Jaffe is an independent journalist who writes about labor, politics, and pop culture. Her new book is Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. She spoke at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library on August 22nd. Tune in again soon.